I'm here to ask today why a racist professor is allowed to teach at CSUEB. East Bay prides itself as being a diverse and inclusive institution, yet we have a racist professor like Professor Gregory Christensen here who publishes articles about how people of color are less intelligent. It is appalling and scary to know that he and others like him get to teach and evaluate Black students and Black faculty. I'm Damian Bulwa, and this is Fifth and Mission. What you just heard was public comment from last October's meeting of the Board of Trustees at Cal State East Bay in Hayward. Today's podcast is about racism and quote-unquote race science. At a time when the nation is finally starting to reckon with its vast racial inequities, my colleague Jason Fagoni has the story of a professor at CSU East Bay who taught black and Latino students that they were inherently less smart. In the past several months, Fagoni explored how this happened. He spoke to students and faculty on the campus who complained, and he investigated how the university responded or failed to respond. And in his piece, which can be found at sfchronicle.com CSEB, Fagoni writes how Professor Gregory Christensen's ideas were deeply rooted in America and in higher education. Fagoni writes, Semester after semester at East Bay, Christensen politely advanced discredited and racist ideas, unnoticed or unchallenged by colleagues and rewarded by bosses. Jason Fagoni joins me now. Jason, a remarkable and troubling piece. Thanks for coming on to talk about it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Jason, let's start with this. Last fall, you broke a shocking story on the front page of the Chronicle about Cal State East Bay in Hayward. What had happened? So Cal State East Bay is one of the most racially diverse public universities in the entire country. 86% of undergraduates are, are non-white. Uh, a large number of them are the first in their family to go to college. And the university markets itself as a social justice school. This is part of their brand. But last October, it emerged that there was a professor at East Bay who was publishing papers that were filled with racist pseudoscience. Um, basically, these papers claim that intelligence is linked to race and that some racial groups are biologically more intelligent than others. In particular, he, he said that um, many white races and Chinese are inherently smarter than African-American and Hispanic groups. And at a public meeting of the Cal State University system, a group of East Bay faculty and students took to the microphone and they aired all this uh, in, in public for the first time. They mentioned the professor's name. They criticized his work. Um, they said it was racist. They said it was tied to dangerous traditions. And they also said he was part of a bigger pattern of systemic racism that the university needed to fight. And the students in particular made a specific demand. They said they wanted this professor gone. They wanted uh, his title to be stripped and they didn't want him on their campus anymore. So after that, I decided to take a deeper look at how this had all happened. How did a professor at one of the most racially diverse campuses in the country end up publishing these discredited ideas about race? We'll get into it. It's a, it's a fascinating story, and it says a lot about where we are in America today. Uh, but first, who is this professor, Gregory Christensen? Gregory Christensen is 67 years old. He's an economist. He's originally from the Boston area and went to graduate school in Wisconsin. And early in his career, he published some very well-regarded economics papers and book chapters. Uh, since the 1980s, he's been teaching economics at East Bay. 
five five or six classes a year, uh, a lot of years. So you should picture classrooms and lecture rooms filled with with undergrads uh, studying economics, and many of them are Hispanic and Black. And I spoke with two of uh, Christensen's former students who uh, who told me a story about an experience in one of his classes they took together in, in 2014. Class was called Public Sector Economics. It was supposed to be, according to the syllabus, a fairly straightforward course about government finance and health insurance markets and that sort of thing. But the students told me that, um, to their surprise, Professor Christensen spent hours lecturing about which races were smarter than others. Um, so the students were there listening in class to this stuff. He, he taught, according to these students, that white people and those of Chinese heritage are smarter on average than black and Hispanic groups um, as measured by IQ tests. He said this was uh, proven uh, by gaps in these average IQ scores. Scientists uh, overwhelmingly say that these gaps are caused by societal factors like racism, poverty, and cultural biases in the tests. But Christensen said that the, the gaps were uh, rooted in genetics. They were inherent. And he also spoke with pride about his own family's uh, heritage. Christensen is white, and um, he's married to a Chinese woman. He, he called himself in class uh, a white tiger. Jason, reading this story, it struck me that at a time when people are saying that racism has caused huge inequities in society, there is this movement that says, no, this stuff is inherent or natural, and it's, it's an insidious idea that it's out there. You write that Christensen's views are part of a larger movement. What do you mean? These ideas are not new, right? They, they go back a long ways. So in the 19th century, there was a British scientist named Francis Galton who was obsessed with the notion that humans can be bred uh, to improve our stock, is the way he put it, almost like certain breeds of dogs or livestock are bred. And he coined a term to describe this idea, eugenics, which means well-born. And he advocated that what he called the more suitable races uh, should have more children than the less suitable races, according to him. So this idea, eugenics, was very close in spirit to um, a pseudoscientific tradition known as scientific racism or race science, which is basically an attempt to justify racism on biological grounds. Often uh, it takes the form of scientists trying to prove the superiority, uh, biological superiority of white races. And I think everybody knows that this, this mindset uh, led to catastrophe, mass murder in the 20th century, genocide, the Holocaust, uh, the crimes of Nazi Germany. But in the early 20th century, even before the rise of the Nazis, these ideas, uh, eugenics, scientific racism, were, were widely popular in America. And in particular, they found a home at some of our most prestigious universities, including California's most prestigious universities. Uh, and even after World War II, uh, in the 1960s, there was a resurgence of this stuff. In academia, there were professors at Stanford and Berkeley who were very influential, and they, they argued that black people had uh, biologically inferior intelligence and that it might be a waste of money to try to educate black children for that reason. Some of the leaders of, of that resurgence are people who um, were inspirations for uh, Christensen. He cites them in, in his papers approvingly. He also last September gave a long interview that was published at a website called American Renaissance. American Renaissance bills itself as a site that promotes in their words, white racial awareness. 
It's published by an organization that the Southern Poverty Law Center considers a hate group. And that site often publishes very similar arguments about race and IQ uh, to the arguments that are found in Christensen's papers. All right, before we get back to how Christensen was teaching at Cal State East Bay and what happened when people found out, you also talked to a lot of scientists and researchers in this field about what they understand about the science and how Christensen is wrong. What did they say? Yeah, I talked to geneticists, essentially, because his claims really really rest on uh, uh, claims about genetics. So I talked to genetics experts at other universities, and what they told me is that uh, Christensen is painting a, a wrong and misleading picture of, of what the science actually says, and it's hard to know where to start with this. Uh, you know, I spend like 1,500 words on this in the story, like really engaging with uh, what he and uh, people in his community are claiming and, and why it's wrong. But I think it comes down to a series of unsupported uh, assertions about, about race. Basically, he and, he and others in that community talk about race as if it's this biological category with very clear edges, right? And, and that's how we perceive race in our everyday lives. But our perception turns out to be wrong. Like, yeah, skin color is genetic like eye color is genetic. But when we lump people into racial categories, we, we aren't just doing that on the basis of skin color. We do it on the basis of things like culture and geography. These things are not genetic. And, and when geneticists actually look closely at the genomes of large groups of people, they see that the reality of race at the genetic level is not uh, clear-edged. In fact, it's very fuzzy and very complicated. Because over thousands of years, human migration has blurred the genetic distinctions between groups. And this is not to say that there are no genetic differences between racial groups, right? There are. Um, but the point uh, that was reinforced to me by geneticists um, who know this stuff and study it all the time and perform original research, the point is that these differences between groups are small. And they don't fall into neat categories like Christensen and others in this community say. The differences don't reinforce racial stereotypes. Often they do the opposite. And, um, and the differences that do exist between groups are, are actually smaller than the differences between individuals within the same group. So that's kind of long-winded, but um, uh, maybe it's best to just say like, look, a, a trained geneticist would not claim the things that Christensen is claiming, right? They, they, they just wouldn't. And I, I've only been focusing on, you know, what he's claiming about, about race here. I'm not even getting into the problems with things in his papers that he says about brain size and um, purported link between brain size and intelligence or problems with his claims about intelligence and IQ. Uh, which is like a whole other ball of wax. But uh, I do go into that stuff uh, in the story. All right, I want to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to ask Jason Fagoni what happened when he confronted Professor Christensen about his views. We'll be right back on Fifth and Mission. Welcome back to Fifth and Mission. I'm Damian Bulwa, joined by Chronicle reporter Jason Fagoni. We're talking about his reporting on a Cal State East Bay professor who was teaching students wrongly that race predicts intelligence. Jason, you confronted Professor Gregory Christensen on his views in the last year. What did he say? It didn't feel like I was confronting him. I just asked him questions uh, about, his, about his work, his research, and his te teaching. And, um, and he answered pretty much all the questions that I had. He was, he was, he was much more transparent about his work um, and his life at the university than anybody else at the university uh, was in the administration. I mean, they, they, uh, 
they said very little to me at all. So what Chris Stainson says is he's not a white nationalist. Um, he says he's never made a serious study of eugenics. He says that his research is legitimate. He says it's been published in peer-reviewed journals, which uh, is true in many cases. He says that it falls uh, well within the mainstream of current thought on, on the roots of intelligence, um, and that it's similar to research performed by other academics who study intelligence, which I think is more arguable. And he says that the reason that people got so upset with this work is, is simply because they don't understand it. And also because people like me and the rest of the media are invested in politically correct narratives and, and don't pay attention to what the science says on the subject. Obviously, I, I, I disagree with that. He says additionally that he um, worked for years at the university with very little opposition or complaint about his research. And that's true. I mean, he says he was even praised and promoted during the years when he was publishing this stuff. That's 100% true, uh, as I document in the story. I mean, fundamentally, this is one of the most remarkable things that I discovered when I was, when I was researching the piece, is that you know, Chris Stainson's work was not any kind of a secret. It, it was out there in the open uh, for years for, for anyone to read, for more than eight years. Fundamentally, he was, he was not uh, trying to hide anything because he believes in what he's doing. This is what he works on and what he's been publishing openly for years. It was, just kind of, it was just kind of out there. So as you say, the work was essentially out in the open. The professor was teaching these things in class. Then let's talk about how this happened at Cal State East Bay. Did Chris Danson always teach these things and what did the university know? No, he, he didn't always uh, teach and publish about these things, from what I could tell. Um, for the first decades of his career, he, he appeared like a very mainstream economist. He, he published about government finance and environmental regulations and wage markets and contributed chapters to textbooks. He collaborated with the only black economist on the East Bay economics faculty, um, who told me that he found Chris Danson to be very courteous and respectful. But there was this change that, that happened around 2010 when Christensen began to pursue this new line of thought. And he began to write a lot about a field that he has no training in, uh, genetics. And he started to publish these theories about race and genetics that echo these very old discredited ideas about race from 100 years ago or more. Um, but even though the ideas are old, they've been resurging lately. And when he started publishing um, this stuff, he, he, he became part of this um, community or movement that calls itself race realism. So this is a phrase, race realism, that you'll see in some academic papers uh, that talk about race and IQ, and also in the more polite and scholarly corners of the white nationalist internet, you'll see the phrase. And I talked to an author and science writer, Angela Saini, who has tracked this movement. And what she told me is that race realism is essentially just a rebrand of uh, race science or racial eugenics. It's a way, she told me, um, for this community to justify racial inequality. And race realism, these ideas, a rebrand of these ideas, are able to survive um, because people who are part of the community are often very polite and learned and they have positions at legitimate universities uh, like East Bay, and those universities support their work. And for the last eight years, until very recently, uh, this was exactly the situation with uh, Chris Stainson at East Bay. So what was the reaction at Cal State East Bay, and, and in particular as this stuff became known and as people started to complain? 
Well, last spring, after the killing of George Floyd and the spread of Black Lives Matter protests, there was a group of faculty at East Bay that began to meet on Zoom, and they called themselves the Alliance for the Black Community. They were basically trying to change the university for the better by supporting Black staffers and Black students. And in the course of that work and doing outreach, they discovered these papers by Chris Stainson. And many members of the group, when they read these papers, were, were pretty horrified. Some in the group were biologists and psychologists and anthropologists, so they kind of understood the scientific background. They understood what the science really says about genetics and race uh, and intelligence. They could tell that Chris Stainson's papers were misstating the science. And so the group talked this over for several months. They, they read the papers. Uh, they tried to understand what they were saying. And... Um, and they began to think about, well, what do we do about it? So at first they tried to raise some concerns internally and they were rebuffed. Uh, they were told that Chris Stainson was tenured. He was an, he was an emeritus professor. He'd essentially entered an early retirement program, but he was still teaching on campus. He, he had these protections. And so, uh, in late October, after the interview that Chris Stainson gave um, was published on American Renaissance, the, the white nationalist site, it kind, of, uh, it kind of provoked this action where several faculty members and students ended up speaking out at this public meeting and, and kind of air, airing, airing this laundry in public for the first time, right? So after that, more people at the university became aware of uh, Chris Stainson's papers and more people weighed in and it became this bigger controversy. And ultimately, a group of faculty went to the Academic Senate, which is a, a voting body of, of faculty, and they introduced a resolution to, to censor Chris Stainson, basically voicing their disapproval of, of his work. And in this resolution, the, the, the faculty asked him to stop publishing his views on race um, under his East Bay title under his East Bay affiliation. It basically said, like, say whatever you want as a private citizen, but when you're speaking as an East Bay community member, please don't do this anymore. And at that point, uh, uh, Chris Stainson and uh, some of his colleagues and, and other people who disagreed with the resolution came forward and said, well, uh, this represents a threat to all of us because it is impinging on our, our speech rights. It's threatening the system of academic freedom that protects us all. And some people saw it as uh, kind of a witch hunt. And at that point, um, the debate became about more than just, you know, uh, the work and research of this one guy. It became about sort of the system of, of speech protections that, uh, that has covered pretty much everybody at American universities for, uh, uh, for decades and decades. All right, let's get to what ultimately happened. We're going to take one more quick break here with Chronicle reporter Jason Fagoni on Fifth and Mission. Welcome back to Fifth and Mission. I'm Damian Bulwa, joined again by Jason Fagoni, the Chronicle reporter. So, Jason, you write that the discussion among the faculty about what to do with this professor was complicated by academic freedom. How so? Well, professors criticize each other all the time, right? Like, that's a normal thing. What is not normal is one professor saying that another professor is so out of bounds with their research or their speech, so wrong that, um, that they should be censored that they should not publish their work anymore, or should not talk about it. That's very rare because of the system of academic freedom that's pervasive at U.S. universities. You know, for a hundred years, academic freedom has been this very durable system of norms, um, saying that faculty should be free to publish what they want, uh, teach what they want, 
and talk about their views in public. It's kind of like, it's a version of the First Amendment uh, at universities, even though there are some crucial differences uh, with the First Amendment. And the system of academic freedom protects everyone. I mean, it's, it's designed to protect the left-wing professor at the right-wing university the same as it protects the right-wing professor at the left-wing university. And uh, so instinctually, because every, pretty much everybody benefits from it, nobody wants to Nobody wants to touch it. But last spring, um, when these faculty discovered Christensen's race realism papers um, and they studied them, they a number of people in the group came to believe that the papers were so egregious that academic freedom didn't apply. And it turns out that there's this common uh, impression of academic freedom, which is that prof it allows professors to say whatever the, whatever they want. And that's not really true. When you look at the roots of academic freedom, why it was originally created, it's, it's always been the case that the university and academic fields have a role in setting standards for research. They, they have a role in saying what's valid and what's not. It, it really couldn't be otherwise. And if a faculty member is publishing things that can be shown to have been discredited, um, then they may not be protected by ac academic freedom. And it's it's more problematic if they're teaching these things to students, and uh, that can also be uh, unprotected, not covered by uh, the system of academic freedom. Ultimately, Jason, what position did the university take? They defended him on speech grounds. The administration said that they abhorred his ideas, uh, and those ideas were antithetical to the university's core values, but still, East Bay had a responsibility to protect the speech rights of faculty, and sometimes that means protecting ideas that make people angry. They said they could only sanction uh, Christensen if he had broken the law or if he had violated the university's anti-discrimination policies, and they said they had done a review and found that he had not violated any of those rules. Uh, therefore, the administration said they were unable to um, accede to any of the demands of, of students or faculty in the resolution. They, they couldn't strip his emeritus professor title. Um, they couldn't really punish him in, in any kind of way that people, uh, people wanted him to be punished. So what ended up happening? Is, is the professor still affiliated with Cal State East Bay? Yeah, he's still professor emeritus of ec economics. He's still affiliated with the university. He is fully retired now, and he's not teaching any classes anymore, so he's not on campus. Uh, December is the last time when he taught. But because he still has this affiliation, he could theoretically return to teach in the future with the school's permission. At this point, it doesn't seem likely that that would happen. But I think one of the big questions raised by this whole controversy is, you know, what is to stop another professor in the future from teaching these discredited ideas about race? Are, are there any guardrails that would prevent it? Part of the reason that race science keeps coming back, keeps resurging every couple of decades is that the academy allows it, right? Universities kind of clear a space for it. They protect that space. And so the bigger question at the root of, of the story is really about, you know, whether an anti-racist university like East Bay claims it wants to be is compatible with the teaching of these unscientific ideas about the biological inferiority of certain races. Can you have both? You know, can you have an anti-racist university and can you have a race scientist teaching there? And that's a really fundamental question. Uh, can a university in 2021 do both of those things? And as far as East Bay goes, uh, that's still an open question. 
Jason Fagoni, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks to my guest today. He's Chronicle reporter Jason Fagoni. To Karen Creighton for producing this episode. And thank you for listening. <laughs>